Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Where do Opportunity Zones fit into the broader alternative investments asset class? And how is financial repression creating an opportunity for OZ investors? Joining me today all the way from Southwest Michigan is my friend and partner at AltsDB, Andy Hagens. Andy, how are you doing? Welcome back to the pod. Thanks, Jimmy. You know, when you mentioned that uh, financial repression is creating an opportunity uh, for opportunity zone investors, it made me think of like a, a mafia, a mafia guy saying, "Have an opportunity you can't refuse." That's kind uh, of what it is, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's what financial repression is, I think, in a way. Uh, but it's it's good to be here, Jimmy. Uh, always a pleasure to converse with the OZ community. And we'll get into that offer that many investors can't refuse. <laughs> A little bit later on in today's episode, but hey, by the way, Andy, before we get going, I wanted to make a little announcement about this podcast for our listeners. We are now a video podcast and all episodes going forward are now available on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash opportunity DB. So if you would prefer to watch instead of listen, please find us there on YouTube and hit that subscribe button. I think this is our first or second episode in the video format. So really looking forward to that. So uh, Jimmy, yeah, I, I, I have to interject that anyone listening right now, uh, you really do need to tune into the YouTube channel. Uh, Jimmy's looking quite dapper today. He's in his summer wardrobe. Jimmy, you look <laughs> great. I, I love your office. I've heard so many people ask you if your office backdrop is one of those uh, like green screen Zoom backdrops, and it isn't. That's your real office, and everybody loves it, especially that Notre Dame football helmet. Yeah, that's right. As I like to tell people, it's real and it's fantastic. Uh, So, hey, Andy, to kick things off, and before we zoom into Opportunity Zones, Andy, you're a big macro guy. So what's your macro view on alts? Well, I love alts. Obviously, I'm the the co-founder of AltsDB, so I I hopefully, you know, hopefully would like alts as an asset class. Um, You know, especially coming out of last year. Last year was just an absolutely record-breaking year for alternatives, uh, especially non-traded, you know, the private placements that we cover so much at AltsDB. So many of these segments just had incredible years uh, with inflows, non-traded REITs, opportunity zone funds, DSTs, uh, you know, BDCs are making a comeback, interval funds. So all of these types of illiquid, you know, mainly real estate related private placement offerings had an incredible 2021. Now into 2022, obviously the markets are a little bit rocky, right? We've had drawdowns in the S&P and equities. Uh, the bond market, forget about whether it's you know going up or down, just look at what it's paying you in terms of yield uh, against the backdrop of inflation. So the bond market is not a great place to be. And so because of that, we've just seen a lot of continuing inflows uh, into all sorts of alternatives and to all sorts of private placement offerings in the real estate world. You know, if you think about real estate conceptually, Jimmy, um, folks who are able to secure any kind of debt to finance the acquisition of real estate 
it's typically going to be below eight and a half percent, right? I mean, unless it's some sort of high risk, you know, construction loan, something of that nature. Uh, it, and so in the real estate world, we have a lot of sponsors and, and buyers who are, are paying negative real interest rates. So, you know, I think right now some investors are asking themselves, what asset class do I hate the least? <laughs> you know, and, and I'd be, I'd start with bonds and say, I think I hate those the most, you know, and then they say, well, I, I don't want to be only long on, on equities. And so, you know, back to the mafioso who's, who's giving us an offer that we can't refuse. I think a lot of investors are almost forced to take some of that allocation that would normally be in the bond market and they're shifting it into alternatives. Now that's sort of a, a negative way of stating it. I think, I think a more positive way to state it is alternatives have also, you know, had solid returns for years after, you know, decade upon decade now. Um, when we look at the Ivy portfolio, right, that, that is, is sort of a, a famous thing in the world of alternatives. You know, people have realized that there's this, uh, what is it, the, the illiquid premium? What, what's the exact term, Jimmy? Um, the um, illiquidity premium. Yes, the illiquidity premium. I think that's caught on. So, I mean, I think I think a lot of investors were relatively bullish on alternatives anyway. And then now with, uh, you know, any money in the bond market being punished, being taxed, let's say, with this financial repression, I think it's just the perfect storm to see continued inflows into alternatives. And in fact, that is what we are seeing in the data. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, bond yields are are <laughs> way behind where they probably should be, or where we would want them to be. Um, I came across this article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. I'm pulling it up again now, Andy. Uh, it's the worst bond market since 1842, <laughs> according to the Wall Street Journal. So on top of all that, bonds are also um, down 10% so far in 2022, which is uh, quite the drop for quite the drawdown for bonds. And, uh, you know, investors on aggregate are really starting to pull out of both bond markets and equities markets, but alternative ETFs and commodities ETFs are soaking up inflows that might otherwise have been headed into those markets. So uh, those are the publicly traded, somewhat of a proxy for alternatives, not not perfect, of course, but 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 pretty close to what we like to track, Andy. What about non-traded alts though, which is your specialty at AltDB. How have they been performing so far this year? Uh, well, they've been performing very well in terms of inflows. Uh, you know, the sponsors are seeing uh, uh, heavy inflows into uh, all sorts of segments. And I, I have this article, and we talked about this article, Jimmy, the other day on the AltDB show. Uh, let's talk about the same article here. It's a great article. Uh, I'm on the DIYer.com. And this is an article that's citing the most recent report from Robert A. Stanger and company. And so the fundraising for non-traded alts totaled almost $33 billion in the first quarter of this year. I mean, that's just the first quarter. And uh, Robert A. Stanger and company here in this article, they are reporting on NAVREITs, non-traded BDCs, interval funds, and Delaware statutory trusts. Uh, DST is the you know close cousin of of QOFs. Maybe and a glaring that. omission there is QOFs, but we'll get to that in a minute. I don't I don't want to interrupt you. Right. So uh, you know within that uh, thirty three billion, a little over twelve billion 
was just from the non-traded REITs, inflows into the non-traded REITs. And then next after that, the non-traded BDCs saw inflows of nearly $9 billion. Interval funds had about $7 billion, and the DSTs had about $3 billion in inflows. And again, that was just in Q1 of this year. Um, so, you know, you, you talk about the, the bond market or, or bond funds taking a hit. Jimmy, I think um, a lot of investors are just saying, look, um, even, if, even if yields go up a little bit, and of course, bond prices and bond yields move inversely, right? So even if yields rise a little bit, they aren't getting anywhere close to 8.5%. They aren't even close to 8.5%. And by the way, even if they were 8.5%, that would only be holding real value in a tax-advantaged account where investors didn't have to pay taxes on that nominal yield, right? You figure if you have taxable bonds um, in a taxable account, in a non-tax advantaged account, you'd have to be yielding uh, far beyond 8.5% to even hold even. So Double digits for sure. It, 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 exactly. So so prices fall 10% and, and yields rise 100 basis points or something. Um, it's still bringing a squirt gun to a bazooka fight. Um, I think so. I think a lot of investors are just kind of rolling their eyes at these interest rate hikes of 25 basis points, 50 basis points. When you see that the CPI is eight and a half percent and the PPI, uh, it's almost a thousand basis points, right? So, and, and we're seeing uh, all sorts of uh, issues factories being closed, ports being closed, um, people being essentially locked in, in buildings, factories being closed all over China. So you figure that's happening right now. That's still going to percolate through the supply chain, and and so it, you know, it, presuming that a lot of the inflation we're seeing is supply chain related, not only demand side related, you know, it, it's not going to be transitory. We're going to see it for quite some time. So, Jimmy, there's a lot of reasons that al- alternatives are doing well, but but the the financial repression that we're seeing right now that's just adding fuel to the fire, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, no no argument from from me there, Andy. Um, I wanted to uh, add some more numbers to some of the numbers you just brought forth from that uh, from that DIYer article that cited that Robert A. Stanger and Company report. Uh, they did not mention ETFs. I mentioned ETFs a minute ago, which are publicly traded uh, alternatives in, in some sense. So fixed income ETFs, and I'm looking at an article right now from wealthmanagement.com. Fixed income ETFs um, through, I think it's about mid-February, so not quite apples to apples with the Q1 numbers you cited. Through February 25th, fixed income ETFs pulled in $1.3 billion of new money, and then uh, commodities ETFs gathered $8.5 billion of net ETF inflows. Uh, pretty impressive through just the first, I guess that's the first, uh, what is that, about six or seven weeks of 2022. Um, by the way, also kind of revisiting what I said about that Stanger report, it does not mention qualified opportunity funds. It doesn't seem like they're tracking qualified opportunity funds, but good news for us is, you know, uh, I do and my partners at Novogradic do. And Novogradic recently released a, port, a report a few weeks ago that in Q1 of this year, qualified opportunity funds in their survey raised $3.97 billion, almost $4 billion. And they estimate that the actual number is likely 
three to four times higher than that because Novogratik only actually surveys a small subset of the total QOF universe, as my longtime listeners would know. Uh, so that would actually put QOFs in the range of 12 to $15 billion of capital raised for Q1 of this year, which would put OZs as an asset class roughly on par with NAVREITs, which is, which is pretty impressive. I mean, it, it, it may very well be that uh, QOFs are basically the largest alternative asset class. They're very high up there, at least. Well, well, Jimmy, I, to interject there, though, I, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because last year, 2021, was a great year for the markets, mm-hmm. right? And so with a QOF, you have that 180 days to place your capital gain, your realized capital gain. So don't get me wrong. I'm very bullish on QOFs in the in the long term, in the medium term, and even in the short term. Uh, but I wonder if the the QOF inflows will be a little bit uh, more like a roller coaster, because as investors see fewer capital gains into this year, right? Uh, as we've seen inflation really take off and the stock market drawdown and the bond market drawdown, I think there's going to be fewer capital gains um, sitting sitting in the income statements, the personal income statements of investors in, in like Q1 of this year, uh, possibly Q2 of this year. So that's probably going to affect the inflows into QOFs in Q3 and Q4 of this year, right? Because investors basically need that capital gain to write the check to the QOF sponsor. Yeah, that may be true, Andy. Um, and I, I, I'd like to kind of take a research dive into that a little bit more at some point in time. Um, certainly as you know, equities run up, up and up and up and up and up, there are more and more unrealized capital gains for potential QOF investors to tap into. That was a point I made on my podcast numerous times throughout the course of 2021. Hey, we've got this big run up since the end of the uh, last recession, what about 09 or so? Um, and even after the little dip that we took during COVID, it's, it's run up tremendously since then, just in the past, uh, what, about a couple of years now. Um, right. That certainly led to a lot of investors with a lot of capital gains. I kind of wonder, though, if, if you know, th- this little drop in the market might, you know, as, as, as we kind of mentioned, some, there's a bit of a drawdown happening within the markets. It, some people might be pulling some capital off the sidelines if they have gains that are locked in for a decade or more. I mean, they're still doing quite well. They are still sitting on quite a, a bit of gains. Um, what, what, what do you think there, Andy? Do you think if, if the markets continue to, to go down, we'll have some people pulling out strategically at, at certain points in time well, and they'll probably still have gains, right? Ab- absolutely, Jimmy. And it, well, let's talk about logical behavior and maybe yeah. illogical behavior. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, investors are sort of famous for um, pulling out after the dip, right? Not at the peak, but but after the dip. Um, and, and like you say, you know, a 15% drawdown or even a 20% drawdown is not that big of a deal for an index fund that you bought in 2005 or 2010 or even 2015 or 2016, right? That yep. you're still probably sitting on quite a bit of a game there. And I think you also need to look at that overall portfolio. And I think investors and all types of investors, not just individual investors, institutional investors, pension funds uh, are souring on bonds right now. And, and for good reason. So I've, I've, uh, I've mentioned financial repression 
several times already. And you know what, I'm Jimmy, I just went ahead and Googled it in case we have any in case we have any listeners right now, maybe you've heard the term thrown around or aren't sure of its exact technical definition. This is what the Google says. Okay. Financial repression comprises, quote, policies that result in savers earning returns below the rate of inflation, end quote, to allow banks to, quote, provide cheap loans to companies and governments, thereby reducing the burden of repayments, end quote. And then here's a little color commentary from Wikipedia, I guess. It can be particularly effective, financial repression, that is, can be particularly effective at liquidating government debt denominated in domestic currency. Hmm. Right. So this it's a wealth it's, tax, essentially. That's a, it's a savers tax. It's yeah. a tax on senior citizens, hmm. it's a tax on uh, pension funds. I mean, a lot of uh, funds, by the way, are, are more or less legally required to have a certain percentage, a high percentage of their assets in bonds. So could you imagine, uh, you know, having to, to finance pensions right now where inflation in the CPI is eight and a half percent and, and bonds are paying, you know, order of magnitude less than that. I mean, it's, it's, it's borderline or, or maybe outright immoral uh, of a policy, I would say, or an unethical policy to tax savers in, in such a way, but more to the point, because there's no, I mean, as an investor, I think you have to be a little bit objective and, and dispassionate about this. More to the point, I think a lot of investors have just realized in a period of financial repression where uh, bond yields are, are negative 5% in real terms, I can't afford to have 40% or 50% or more of my portfolio in bonds. So I think there's, there's the carrot and the stick, Jimmy. So you were talking about uh, the carrot is I'm an investor and I'm still sitting on gains, even though we've had a market drawdown. I still, you know, I have this index fund that I bought way back in 2009. So I'm still sitting on quite a sizable capital gain. That's the carrot. The stick is looking at my portfolio. Goodness gracious, I have got to get out of these bond funds. And I mean, personally, I'm, I don't tell people to like liquidate all of their bonds or to not have a certain percentage still allocated to them as ballast. But when negative real when real yields are negative five percent, I think investors have to react to that. You have no choice, right? It's it's that offer that you can't refuse. <laughs> That's right. I'm kind of expecting Vito Corleone to walk into my room at any point in time here. Um, <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. But okay, so I think I think there's there's two things that you're hitting on. At least I'm picking up on two things, Andy. One is I'm just considering an investor's asset allocation right now. Let's just consider like a pretty plain vanilla 60-40 stock to bond asset allocation, pretty traditional um, investable asset allocation for, for most high net worth investors. You know, if, you've, if, if you're sitting on that for the past few years and maybe you haven't rebalanced in a while, you're likely overweighted stocks anyway. You might want to draw down some of your stocks. Uh, and then the, the Opportunity Zone um, incentive makes a great place to park that if you don't want to necessarily plow it into uh, bonds, as, as you mentioned with the financial repression in mind. Um, and that gets me to my second point, which is maybe 60-40 is kind of outdated in today's macroeconomic environment with this financial repression. Is 
too much of a ballast to have in your portfolio when the ballast isn't even really acting as a ballast these days? Well, that that's ooh, that's a good question, Jimmy. You put me <laughs> on the spot. No, I love it. I, I love being put on the spot. Well, first, let me give my uh, standard financial disclaimer. Uh, I'm not giving investment advice to any individual person. Always check with your tax or financial advisor, yada, yada, yada. You get it. Um, so I think, first of all, it depends on an investor's time horizon, mm-hmm. right? So the 60-40... That's sort of a, um, a nice portfolio to cite, but it's it's sort of independent of time horizon, right? So a lot of institutionals uh, in it will use the 60-40, but, but they're sort of have an ongoing need for wealth preservation, but they also want growth and in income. Um, a lot of times you'll hear, you know, once you hit retirement age, then you'll gradually um, go glide along to a 40-60 portfolio, which is 40% equity. 60% bonds or in the other direction, you know, if you're 25, if you just um, opened your IRA or just started saving your 401k, you don't need to put 40% in bonds. So it's all sort of a sliding scale. Yeah. But in general, Jimmy, it seems like uh, it would be prudent to just trim down. So like if, if your normal target portfolio is, is 30% bonds, maybe trim it down to 25. If it's normally 40, maybe trim it down to 30. I mean, a lot of this also depends on an investor's um, capacity to weather a drawdown without um, you know, making that behavioral mistake of selling equities like at the bottom. Um, and so that's where the, the bonds, the portfolio ballast come in handy. But I honestly come from the Ben Graham school which is he recommended as a, as a default, as a starting point. And of course, you also have to examine the historical context where bond yields were very, very different way back in the day when the intelligent investor was being written, right? Mm-hmm. Um, ben Graham, he's, he's like the godfather of, of value investing. But his rule of thumb was you could have as high as 75% of a portfolio in bonds or as low as 25%. And an investor should adjust that based on current conditions. Like for instance, financial repression being a current condition that an investor would react to. But he had that rule of thumb as, as 25 as sort of a hard stop, as sort of a, a hard minimum of bonds in a portfolio, just to provide that ballast. Um, and, and they're also a form of dry powder, right? So if you can envision that maybe there's a further drawdown in the equities market, um, it's good to have some dry powder to be able to rebalance into equities uh, when the equities are, right, are, are down, right? Because that's the best time to buy into the stock market after a major drawdown. Um, so, you know, I, I think I answered the question. Maybe I gave a little bit of an asterisk, um, but I've, I've personally in my own portfolio, uh, about a year ago, I adjusted my target downward um, because I just, I looked at, I looked at the, and this was before the CPI was eight and a half percent, but I could sort of see where things were going. I could see some of the, policy decisions being made at the federal level in the United States and then also globally, um, frankly, with some of the decisions being made in other countries that affect our supply chain and inflation in this country. But I sort of had that sense, this is going to get a lot worse before it's going to get better. Uh, I was never on team transitory. And so you know, I personally adjusted that target down for my own portfolio. And I, I think a lot of other investors did the same. I mean, we've had 
folks in Washington, we've had the, the president for a while, not anymore, but for a while was saying, you know, we think this inflation is transitory. I think very few people were believed that, you know, even six or nine months ago. And I, I think a lot of investors, frankly, already did pull money out of the bond markets. And obviously the inflows that we talked about into all these alternatives, both both ETFs like the, the liquid alts, but also, you know, the data that we talked about with the non-traded alternatives, I think it shows that investors were were taking not only capital gains, but they were probably also liquidating some of their fixed income assets to put into alternatives. Sure. So going back to that example of, you know, if you're drawing down your the bond portion of your portfolio from let's say 40 to 30 or from 30 to 25, you know, somewhere in that range, where where is that allocation going toward? Is it going back toward stocks? The stocks may be overvalued right now. There's certainly been volatile the past uh, few months here. Mm-hmm. Uh, or is there an opportunity here for alternative assets? Is that why we're seeing this increase in assets being amassed in, in alternative asset classes? And is this why we're seeing popularity surging in qualified opportunity fund investing? Well, absolutely, Jimmy. I think it is. I mean, I think historically, real estate has proven to be a pretty darn good segment to invest in during periods of higher inflation, higher sustained inflation. I would say that the devil is in the details, though, right? So, and, and so when I when I say real estate, by the way, uh, that's the real estate is the eight hundred pound gorilla when we're talking about these illiquid alts, these non traded alts. You know, you also have things like uh, gold ETFs and commodity ETFs. But at the alternative investment database, we're more covering that uh, private placement side of the industry, side of the space. Um, you know, Typically, these are products geared for accredited investors with investment minimum, minimum investable amounts of uh, like 100,000 or sometimes even higher, 250,000 or more. But there's all, all sorts of types of different alts, but a lot of them are linked to real estate or own real estate assets. And you know, if you think about debt financing, for instance, just for instance, if, if you're able to uh, purchase an asset, let's, let's say a multifamily asset or maybe a hospitality asset, those assets have the ability to generate increased income along with inflation, right? So if inflation is 8% a year, maybe rents go up 8% a year. Obviously, things can be a little stickier than that. So that there is a little bit of risk there. But with a hospitality asset, for instance, you know, a hotel can reprice their, their room rates every single day, right? Not every segment of real estate has that ability. For instance, some triple net leases or longer term uh, retail leases, they're not going to have quite that short term pricing power to reprice rents uh, along with inflation. But generally, generally, uh, real estate owners have that choice, right? And so if you're able to borrow money and get debt financing at an interest rate of, of four and a half or five percent or or even six percent, and inflation is running eight and a half percent a year, well, I'll take that deal all day long, right? I mean, I'm literally borrowing money at negative real interest rates and investing in an asset that has that ability to increase uh, you know, the yield from that asset in line with inflation. And that's even in the abstract. 
you know, absent any sort of strategy or anything. And you mentioned QOFs. When I think of a lot of the, um, you know, the pitches that I saw at the last OZ pitch day, and I understand that we have another OZ pitch day coming up in July. Um, but a lot of these projects have very interesting strategies, whether it's, you know, investing in Silicon Valley or investing in the Sun Belt, or or just targeting areas where there's just huge demand for multifamily, um, and and so they're even adding value, you know, at that operator at that strategic level as a sponsor, over and above the sort of abstract, um, you know, built-in advantages that they have in an air, you know, this time of higher inflation. So I think if if an investor is is you know adjusting their portfolio to hold fewer bonds or a, a lower amount of bonds from let's say 40% to 30% of the total portfolio something like that i do think a lot of that money is going into alternatives it's going into real estate specifically and i don't really see a catalyst for that to change anytime soon because if you're borrowing money especially at an interest rate that is lower the inflate than the inflation rate. Inflation is not really a bad thing. So it's it's sort of, you know, it's I don't know, is it politically incorrect for me to say that, Jimmy? I that, you know, for a lot of real estate investors, inflation can be good, or or at least at least it has pros and cons that maybe balance each other out. Um, versus the bond market, it's just straight bad. There's no upside to the high inflation that we're seeing. Yeah, I think that's right, Andy. And you know, for me personally, um, I did the same thing that we're discussing. You know, last year I saw my portfolio was kind of out of whack. I hadn't rebalanced in a while. I was overweighted stocks. I didn't really want to just shift them into bonds. So I I pulled some chips off the table and I I put them into alts. I put them into real estate and private equity. And um, fingers crossed it works out. But at least I, I'm sleeping a little more comfortably at night. My portfolio is a little bit more diversified, and I think it's hedged against inflation and these other um, macroeconomic trends that are kind of, you know, uh, acting as a headwind against more traditional markets. Uh, So Andy, we've been discussing a lot of the macro trends uh, during the course of this episode and and why that's leading to an increase in popularity in opportunity zones and alts more broadly, you know, inflation, financial repression, stocks potentially being overheated or overvalued. What about structural trends? Uh, what, what, what are some tr- structural reasons why alts are continuing to amass more interest from investors and more assets at the end of the day? That is a great question. And, and I would point to two things, really. Transparency and access. Hmm. So number one, I'll, I'll start with transparency. I just think in the, in the age of the internet, obviously, um, and but even just more media covering the space and more technological project, uh, products publishing information about alternative products. There's just a lot more information about various alternative products. And it's easier for an everyday investor, even a retail investor like you or I, to access that information. It's also easier for a financial advisor to access that information. Of course, you know, a lot of advisors, a lot of RIAs, family offices, they're time limited, right? So they don't have endless hours to go research this stuff. Um, but, but frankly, there's just, there's more information, but I would also say 
better information, depending on, on, on your resource online that you're looking at. Um, but the other aspect there, uh, access, right? Obviously, we have crowdfunding platforms now. So, so really, I mean, that's like totally democratized access to alternatives with crowdfunding platforms. But even with private placement offerings that are geared for accredited investors, um, you know, with investment minimums of 50 or 100 or $250,000, there are more of those products available. Uh, more of them are uh, registered as 506C offerings where a retail investor can go and buy them directly, you know, whether we're talking about uh, DSTs, whether we're talking about QOFs, uh, non-traded REITs, other kinds of private equity funds. It's just a little bit easier to invest in these products than it was 10 years ago, certainly versus 20 years ago. And I think these two aspects, the informational aspect and the accessibility aspect, it seems like they're, uh, they're both constantly improving like a little bit every month, every year. You know, it's like every month it gets like 1% easier. Every quarter gets 1% easier to invest in this stuff. Maybe you don't notice that day to day, but over a period of like five years, I think it just makes a, a massive change. And so I th those are the two main structural reasons that I think have, have been a big tailwind for the alt industry and, and also, frankly, for, for QOFs, right? You host these OZ pitch days. And we know that the right after the pitch day, folks that that watched the presentations, you know, they're essentially firing up their bank account, filling out some paperwork. I mean, you can do a hello sign or a docu sign, and you can be wiring money the next day, like literally the next day, um, <laughs> which is a good thing because sometimes people are right up against their 180 day capital gain deadline. Um, so it, it's nice that it's a little bit easier. I don't like paperwork any more than the next investor, right? Right, right. Yeah, and by the way, we're, uh, we're we're celebrating this year in one way, I guess, the 10th anniversary of the Jobs Act of 2012, which is what brought into um, creation the Rule 506C under Regulation D. I'm getting kind of uh, nerdy now about securities laws, but it essentially allowed what you're talking about, Andy, these these uh, larger private placement funds, large and small private placement funds, to be able to source capital directly from retail investors, guys like, like you and me. I mean, I don't know if we'd be where we are today with pitch day and, and opportunity zones if it weren't for uh, rule 506C, because all those funds that uh, pitch on that day are, are offered under that rule. By the way, if you're into securities laws and you want to learn more, I've got an interview coming up with an OZ attorney and securities attorney, Connie Rathbone, in a couple more weeks. So again, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and uh, your favorite podcast listening platform. Um, Andy, what about, we're, we're, we're kind of bringing it back to the, uh, the macro view now, inflation, financial repression. What are some of the best asset classes to hedge against that? Uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, broadly, alts being a great place to go if you're worried about those trends, but within alts, within opportunity zones, maybe, what, what, what do you like as asset classes to go into as a hedge? I love multifamily. Hmm. I'm not going to make, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that I don't. I mean, there, honestly, there are a lot of different segments in real estate uh, that I think could look appealing. Even, you know, the cap rates have compressed, right? So these assets are, are priced higher, but, but even so, I still think it's possible to find especially relative value. 
but multifamily, Jimmy, you know, this, this nation has a shortage of 5 million or more housing units. And so there's just so much demand, especially, you know, I know sponsors are, are very active in the Sun Belt in some of these Southern states that have less, you know, onerous uh, regulatory uh, agencies. It's just a little easier to build because of the tax burden and so on and so forth. So I think especially multifamily in the Sun Belt in a lot of these states, you know, Texas, Florida. Um, I'd also say, you know, you asked me about alts and I'm a big alts cheerleader, but I, I just think it's good for investors to remember that if you are a net saver, it's great when the stock market draws down, right? Because it's like, it's, it's, it's going on sale. If you go to buy your VTI or your index fund, it's on sale today. It's on 15% sale versus you know what it cost three or four months ago. So or sometimes I, even three or four days ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know if if you're an, if you're a net saver, um, I'd say absolutely, I'm bullish on real estate in the long term. I think especially tax advantage alts for high net worth accredited investors are just a great vehicle uh, for those investors to grow their wealth. Um, I, I still remain long publicly traded equities as well. And, and honestly, yeah, I still have that allocation to fixed income. So to me, it's all about that balanced portfolio. I think different investors have a different appetite for what, you know, what amount of their portfolio they're willing to be a liquid. And that's okay. You know, for one investor, it might be 5%, another it might be 10%, for another, it might be 20%. Once you get into ultra high net worth or family offices, that number tends to be higher. Uh, you know, which is appropriate for their situation. Yep. Well, the great, great insights as always, Andy. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, before we go, where can you tell our listeners to go to learn more about you and AltsDB? Well, Jimmy, you and I co-host the Alternative Investment Podcast, uh, where we share a lot of tax advantage strategies for high net worth investors and advisors to grow their portfolio. Uh, and that podcast is available on all the major platforms, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you just search the Alternative Investment Podcast, it'll pop right up. You'll see Jimmy and my uh, smiling faces. You can click that subscribe button. And of course, we're also on YouTube. So if you're watching uh, this Opportunity Zones podcast on YouTube, you can just click AltsDB keyword in YouTube and it should show, uh, show up there too. Um, and later on this year in December... We will be hosting an investor event, um, but as long as you subscribe to our show uh, on any listening platform or on YouTube, we'll, we'll talk about that later this year. So very excited for that. Uh, we always have a lot of fun at our events and uh, very excited for our pitch day that we have coming up in July at Opportunity DB. That's right, Andy. Yeah, the next OZ pitch day is coming up July 28. 2022 one-day online investor matchmaking event where investors with capital gains can find qualified opportunity funds to consider investing in. And then that event at AltsDB that you referenced, Andy, will be Alts Expo 2022. That's coming up in December. Uh, for our listeners and our viewers out there today, I will, as always, have show notes available on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there we'll, we will have links to all of the resources that Andy and I discussed on today's show. Please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Andy, thanks again. 
Thanks, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.